Hey, it's great to be here. It seems like it's been three years since we did this the first time. A lot's happened in between, so it's great to be back with you. Okay, well, I think just from a general educational point of view, it'll be good to review the three major agencies that are in the news right now. And just to make sure that people know some of the details, there is a technical difference between creating money and printing money. So we can go over that a little bit. We can go over the three agencies which uh, are in the news, the Federal Reserve System of our country, the Treasury, and the Bureau of Engraving and Printing that actually does the, the physical printing of money. And we can talk a little bit about the, the differences between those three so that people are good consumers of information. And then we can talk generally about where inflation comes from and when we might see it in the future, given all this money creation that's been going on right now. So those would be some things we can definitely chat about. Yes, I'm getting that question a lot about, hey, all this creating and printing of money and flooding into the economy is going to cause us big problems later on with inflation. So we definitely, I think, want to address that. Treasury, the Federal Reserve, yep, and the Bureau of en Bureau of Printing and Engraving. Yeah, the, the SBA, Small Business Administration, is uh, part of the federal government, and they are basically just the intermediary. So they are not actually uh, issuing the loans. Uh, you apply through a local bank, and ultimately that bank will get that money cleared through the SBA. Uh, but the actual money is coming either from the Fed or from the Treasury. So the SBA is really just kind of an intermediary institution. The other 
Yeah, there is a, a, an important distinction between those two things. And uh, for people who don't quite realize the difference, I think it's important that people just have a good understanding of what that technical difference is. Because it does sound the same, but it really is two different things. Well, it's, it's not that alarming because we do have some recent history that suggests that this great infusion of creation money into the economy has not led to inflation to a high level before, and that comes from the 2008 crisis. Uh, we, we created and printed a lot of money during that time period, and the Federal Reserve was very good about managing inflation uh, a couple of years after that, and we didn't see the kind of inflation that many people uh, thought maybe would happen during that time. So I have a great deal of confidence that we're not going to see this um, inflation again this time around because we're dealing with roughly the same proportion of increase. In absolute volume, it's greater, but in relative proportion, it, it's just a little bit higher than what we had before. So since we didn't see it 12 years ago, I've got a pretty good high level of confidence that we're not going to see it again. But I know there's a lot of concern about that. Yeah, absolutely. There's, there's a lot to be optimistic about in that regard. Well, yes, because uh, what happens is the Federal Reserve will lower interest rates in order to stimulate economic activity. So once that activity is stimulating and then that stimulation results in inflation, then the Fed will just do the opposite. It'll start raising that rate. And obviously, if you're at zero, the only place you can go is up. So when the Fed start raising that rate, then economic activity will slow down and then inflation will be uh, stamped down a little bit. No, no, absolutely. They're looking to speed things up. But in, in the bad news is since they are effectively at zero right now, there's no lower place to go. You can't have negative interest rates. That doesn't make any sense. So we, we're now kind of backed into the corner where, you know what, we, we, we've got, you know, the, the way you think about it, you know, kind of the old, old Westerns. Uh, you know, the, the gun is empty of bullets right now. You know, you've, you've fired all your rounds. You've exhausted that part of your tool belt, and now you've got an empty holster because you're at zero and you can't go any lower. So if they wanted to stimulate the economy, they're going to have to do it in some other ways besides lowering interest rates because you're as low as you can go. Of one or, 
Sure, sure. You, you have lots of different um, measures that you can take. Now, we have to be careful to distinguish between what the Federal Reserve can do in monetary policy and what the Congress and the President can do through what we call fiscal policy. So we can achieve the similar objectives, but the tools that we use are going to come from different places. So if the Fed was completely out of tools on the monetary side, there's still some things that Congress can do on the fiscal policy side to stimulate the economy. So we haven't exhausted all of our options. Uh, we just exhausted one in terms of lowering interest rates because we're yeah. now to zero. Yeah, Yes. Yes, there was some speculation that the manner in which he came out, which was a little non-standard in terms of the timing, because if I remember correctly, the, f the first announcement that he made uh, from the Federal Reserve was just a couple of days before the regular open market committee meeting. So that actually sent some negative impact into the markets because uh, by jumping the gun by just two or three days and making an announcement ahead of that open market committee gave the impression that actually things were a whole lot worse than expected and he couldn't wait two or three days to do it during normal times. He had to do something a little bit earlier and whenever the Fed does something outside of the normal practice, it sometimes sends some jitters through the, uh, through the economy and through the markets and we did see some negative reaction. Uh, but then the market didn't uh, recover a few days after that once the dust settled. But the initial reaction was, oh, okay, you're doing something non-standard. And the only time you do something non-standard was when we've got a really bad situation. So maybe things are worse than expected. Yeah. Yeah. And they're meeting again next week. Um, so I think next Monday and Tuesday is their regularly scheduled. So it'll be interesting to see their press release uh, Tuesday afternoon at the normal time. Yeah. What's the market's uh, reaction to that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, Yeah. 
Well, I've only been a co-author on one book, but I would like to uh, give a plug for a second book. Uh, the, the main book I use in class is uh, co-authored by four of my friends. The lead author is Jim Gortney, who's a longtime professor at uh, Florida State as well. He's been here for over 50 years, and that book is in its 16th edition. It's called Macroeconomics, Private and Public Choice. Uh, to me, that's the best book on the market. So if you're just wanting to be a good student of economics at the introductory level, that would be a good book. The other book that uh, I co-authored with Jim and a couple of other my good friends is called Common Sense Economics. That is what we call a primer. That means we just kind of scratch the surface on a bunch of different topics. Uh, the book is three-part economics and one-part personal finance. So if you're looking for some uh, introductory personal finance ideas, then Common Sense Economics 3rd Edition would be a good book for you. Yeah, 12, tw yeah, we call them elements, 12 key elements of economics. And we again, we just highlight the, the what we consider to be the most important ones. People respond to incentives and, and things of that nature. Uh, so again, just an introductory book just to get people started on these ideas. It doesn't go into great detail. We've only got a few graphs and a few figures in the book just to try to keep it uh, at a very readable, easy to understand level for the beginner. And uh, then if you're interested in something more complicated, I've got lots of books on the bookshelf I can send you to if you want to get deeper into the theory. Yeah, and we, there's all kinds of digital versions out there as well. So if you've got a Kindle, you can get it, get it on your Kindle. That's right. You can get that in just a few seconds on a download. Now let's let's keep it at that. That's going to be plenty to talk about. Welcome to the Business Matters Talk Show with Charles Musgrove. On Business Matters, we discuss the issues that matter to your business. Find more episodes on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, and Beanteam.com. And now here's your host, Charles Musgrove.
Well, thank you very much. It's great to be here again. It seems like it's been a long time since we were together last time. A lot has changed, and I know a lot's going to continue to change, so I appreciate being here. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not even allowed on campus these days. Uh, we, we've been completely shut out of campus. We are encouraging to do the best of our ability from home, uh, but I, I can't go to my office unless I get special permission right now. Yeah, I think most universities around the country, I know FSU is committed to going to complete online remote instruction throughout the entire summer. Uh, FSU has a similar structure to most um, universities around the country where we run at least two summer programs. Uh, Here at FSU, we call them B and C. B is the first half, C is the second half. And uh, we've committed to online instruction throughout the entire summer. And we are simply in a wait-and-see mode about what's going to happen in the fall. We all hope and pray that we can go back as normal and welcome students back and we can all walk into the classroom in August for the fall. But we just don't know if that's going to happen yet. So we've got some contingency plans that the university is talking about in case of different events unfolding so that we're prepared. But uh, I know FSU has announced that we're not going to officially make that decision until early July. So we're in a wait-and-see mode until then. Oh, yes. There's a lot that can happen in the next three days, as we've seen uh, with this whole thing unfolding. So, yeah, we just have to be patient. I know that's really hard. Every day that goes by, it gets harder and harder to be patient. But that's the only thing we can do right now is be patient and be hopeful. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's a tough trade-off. Yeah. It's, it's a tough trade-off. And, you know, when people start this at an individual level, so we don't even have to talk about the whole economy. So at the individual level, uh, you know, do, you as an individual, do you, do you stay at home and make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, or do you order out, even if it's curbside, there's a, a greater risk of contracting the virus, even if you go through a drive through so you have to make that trade-off. Is the benefit of going out and picking up food at a restaurant 
worth the risk of potentially uh, adversely affecting your health. So you take that at an individual level and you just put large groups together and now you've got a national trade-off. How much economic activity are we willing to forego to increase the health and safety of our citizens? And that's a really tough decision to make. And, you know, where do you draw the line with essential services? You know, if I've got a plumbing problem, can I go to Home Depot? Is that essential? Or, you know, what if my uh, something happens with my roof? I mean, is this all kinds of different scenarios where, to me, something that is essential may not be essential to you? So it's really hard to define these things uh, when you really get down to the nuts and bolts of it. No. Yeah, no, they're really not. So just for people to be good consumers of information, understand the difference. Uh, there, there truly is a difference between printing money and creating money. So the printing of money comes from the Bureau of Printing and Engraving. They have two sites. Uh, the most famous is in Washington, D.C. If you're ever in that area, it's really fantastic to go there and take a tour, and you can walk around their facility uh, and get reasonably close to where the printing presses are. And you can literally see the money going through the process of being printed out into the Federal Reserve notes that eventually wind up in all of our pockets. So that is the actual printing, and that comes from the Bureau Creating money sounds very similar. It basically has the same effect in terms of getting people the resources and the funds to buy more things. Uh, but creating money is actually done a little bit differently. Creating money comes mostly through the Federal Reserve and through the banking process. And it doesn't involve actually printing anything brand new in terms of a, a paper note or a, a coin or anything like that. So what happens is um, when the Fed buys treasury bonds from an individual bank or from an individual uh, running around the economy, then that money gets get put into the banking system. And at the end of every day, each bank has to do an accounting. That's why if you look carefully at the ATM or if you look carefully at your online banking, it'll always give you a deadline about when that deposit will hit your account that day or whether it's going to be deferred to the next day. So there's always a deadline, and each bank has a, has a different deadline according to where it is. So if you're on the East Coast, it might be 11 p.m. If you're on the West Coast, it'll be 11 p.m. Eastern, or excuse me, Western time. But at the end of every day, every bank has to do an accounting, and it has to add up its total number of deposits, and then it has to have a portion of that set aside as what we call required reserves. 
and the other 90, for most banks, that's 10%. So just make the math easy. So 10% of the deposits has to be set aside as required reserves. The other 90% is what we call excess reserves. And those can go into one or two places. They can either stay at the bank in the excess reserve account, or it can be lent out. And when it is lent out, then we go through what we call the money creation process. Because when that money is lent out, it becomes a new deposit at a different bank. And then that bank takes 10%, sets it aside or required reserves, takes the other 90% in excess reserves, and then it can lend it out again. So by these bank-to-bank deposits and withdrawals, we actually go through a money creation process. So more money is made available in the economy when the Fed goes through these actions and when individuals go through these actions, but we're not literally printing more pieces of paper that we call Federal Reserve notes. Yes, we've gone through a lot of money creation right now. So, well, I haven't heard that 14 years. That, that wouldn't surprise me, but uh, I haven't heard that one. Um, but I've looked at uh, a lot of the creation uh, uh, stats from the Federal Reserve Bank. And we have created over $2 trillion worth of new money through this um, process that I described earlier. So I don't know if that exactly translates into 14 years, but clearly uh, this is going to add to our uh, annual budget deficit. And when we add to our annual budget deficit, we add to our national debt. And I think that's what most people are concerned about is where is all this money coming from? Well, it's coming through a creation process, but most of it's dead because a lot of it comes from the U.S. Treasury, which issues a bond, which is just an IOU, which means they collect money today and they don't have to pay it back for a while. Now, it depends on what kind of bond it was issued. So for those people who are worried about, hey, we're going to have to pay all this back, well, the good news is we may not have to pay it back for 10, 20, or 30 years. If the Fed is, or excuse me, if the Treasury issued a 30-year bond, that means they get the money today, but they don't have to pay it back until 30 years when that bond expires. So yes, any debt that we issue today will have to be paid back. But the good news is we don't have to pay it back in six months or a year. It literally could be 30 years before we have to pay these back. It all depends on what exact bond was issued. And most of the bonds are long-term bonds, 10, 20, or 30 years. Well, we have not missed the payment. So the U.S. has not defaulted on any bonds that have come due in the, the last few years. And actually, I, I don't even think in our nation's history that we've actually officially defaulted on a bond. If you remember... Oh, this is back, oh gosh, probably over 15 years ago now when uh, the whole Greece uh, crisis and, and a lot of that stuff happened. Uh, literally what happened there is some countries like Greece said, you know what, I, I've got these IOUs and I don't have money, I can't pay. That's what's called a default. Just like when you default on a, on a personal loan, you just tell the bank, listen, I, I know I owe you some money, but I don't have it. 
and therefore you don't get it and I default on the loan. The United States as a federal government has never defaulted on any loan and I don't think there's any reason to believe that anytime soon there's any concern that we're going to default on any of these new loans. So I, I would wipe that off the table. That There's no reason to believe that we're going to default. Um, no, I don't, I don't think so because a lot of this is still done through, um, private institutions and you can pick the name of your favorite bank and that would be a good example of a private institution. So I don't think there's any fear that the federal government is going to wind up owning any of these. Uh, the federal government really doesn't have any interest in owning banks. They, they know that they're not very good at that and the private sector is much better. And uh, for those of you who might be concerned about conspiracy theories, I don't think there's any reason uh, to fan uh, that flame. There, there's no reason to believe that the federal government wants to take over any of these banks. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this is where the, the, the Treasury and the Federal Reserve come into play. So if, if an individual bank is going to issue a loan through the SBA and, and through all these other government programs that have been created lately, they need to get the money from somewhere. So, I mean, let's just think about this from a practical point of view. If I'm going to borrow money from you, Charles, you, you have to have money. I mean, if I want to borrow $20, you have to have $20 in order to lend to me. So a lot of these banks right now don't have that kind of money. So what the Treasury and the Federal Reserve are doing is providing that liquidity. They're providing those funds so that the local bank here in Tallahassee can have the amount of money in order to issue these loans. Now, we know that most of these loans are going to go away because they're going to be forgiven. They're going to be turned into grants, and they're going to be wiped off um, the, the debts of the people who actually took them out, and that's the whole purpose. There's nothing negative about that. That's the, what they were designed to do. But initially, to get the money into the hands of these businesses, somebody has to have the money to begin with. So this is where the Fed and the Treasury are coming in and providing those funds, providing that liquidity so that the SBA and the individual banks can get the money to the businesses who are trying to help. Yeah, let's, let's make sure that everybody understands that there is a very uh, specific difference between the Treasury and the Federal Reserve. So the Federal Reserve, uh, the, the official name is the Federal Reserve System of the United States. And we who talk about the Federal Reserve System a lot just affectionately refer to them as the Fed because uh, the Federal Reserve System is a lot to say. So we just talk about the Fed. The Fed is independent of the federal government. The, the U.S. government. And what I mean by independent is they do not receive any funding. So when Congress goes through their annual appropriations and they decide what government agencies are going to get money and how much, 
the Federal Reserve System is not part of that discussion. The Federal Reserve generates its own revenue, pays its own expenses, and if there is any profit, then it takes that profit and sends it over to the Treasury and basically sends it into the coffers of the uh, U.S. federal government. So independent means that there are uh, no uh, financial ties between the Fed and Congress. The Treasury is an official U.S. government agency. The Treasury is in charge with making sure that Congress and the President has all the money that they want in order to do what they want to do. So, for example, if the uh, federal government wanted to spend more money to buy uh, something or to, to uh, build a, a new aircraft carrier, to build a new road, then they would need revenue for that. And that revenue comes through the Treasury. So the Treasury is part of the U.S. federal government. The Federal Reserve, just simply called the Fed, is not. It is independent. Yes, Chairman Powell. Now, he is appointed by the president, so there is obviously some link between the federal government and the executive branch and the Federal Reserve, and the Board of Governors is appointed by the president as well. So there are some political ties in that regard, but uh, the, the Fed is independent in terms of um, where it gets its revenue from. Yes, yes. That's been a discussion recently about some articles on it, and that's going to come up. That's going to continue to come up. So, talk to us and calm us down about inflation. Well, let's go back. What's the definition of inflation? So when when I go to my favorite store and the price of the favorite item went up by 10%, that's not necessarily inflation. That's just a supply and demand shift within one market that caused the price to go up. So if I go to the store and uh, a couple of things that I buy are more expensive, that's not necessarily inflation. Inflation is a persistent, consistent increase in the general level of prices as measured by the consumer price index. And the consumer price index is calculated each month by the Bureau of Labor Statistics. And uh, it gets a lot of fanfare every month when the data are released. And you can go to their website. It's just bls.gov. And right there on the front page, it'll tell you what the inflation rate is. Uh, and again, it's calculated every month. And uh, so essentially what the government does is it, it, it goes shopping every month and it says, okay, here's the list of things that I'm going to buy. What was the price last month? What was the price this month? And then it goes through this mathematical calculation uh, that we call an index and it comes up with a singular, singular number. And then we compare the index this month to last month. And if the index goes up, then we say we've got a little inflation. If the index goes down, then we call it deflation. So it's a general level of increase in prices is what inflation is. Now, inflation comes from the money supply. So when the money supply rises more rapidly than the goods and services available, then we have inflation. So let me give you a, an easy scenario to think about. Let's suppose that the economy, as measured by gross domestic product, is growing at 2% every year. 
And that's a nice number to shoot for. So let, let's just, the economy's growing at 2%. If the money supply increases at 2%, then we're not going to have any problems. Even if the money supply grew by 3 or 4%, we're not really going to have any problems because the economy is growing at about that rate. It's only when the money supply grows a lot faster than goods and services that we're going to have inflation. So another scenario would be the money supply is increasing at 15% per year and goods and services is increasing at 2 or 3% per year. That's the recipe for inflation. So now what do we have on the table right now? You've got the economy most likely shrinking. We don't have the exact data yet because unlike the unemployment numbers and the inflation numbers, which are calculated and reported each month, the gross domestic product, goods and services in the economy, is measured and reported each quarter. That's just a much more difficult task. So um, probably very soon, because the first quarter ended um, at the end of March, of course, and here we are at the end of April. So within a couple of weeks, we should have the first estimate of first quarter 2020 GDP, gross domestic product. And it's always an estimate. And usually we have at least three numbers that come out. We have a first estimate, we have an update, and then we have a third, sometimes final. Every now and again, there's a fourth one. So as new information comes out over the course of time, there's always revisions and before we say, okay, that's the final number, we're done, now we're gonna move on to the next quarter. So we don't know exactly what's going to happen with the first quarter, although everybody can look around and say, whoa, everybody's locked up at home. Economic activity is is come way down. So we know the numbers are going to come way down. We just don't know exactly where they are just yet. Uh, so, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, Q2 is certainly going to be devastating, but again, there's such a lag there. So not only do we have to wait for the second quarter to be officially over before we can even think about measuring it, but we're dealing with over a $20 trillion economy. It takes a long time to figure out what the measurement is for that big of an economy. So it's always several weeks after the quarter closes before we even get the first estimate. So typically six weeks is, is uh, about the general time frame is when we get that first estimate from the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Analysis. And you can go to their website too, it's BEA.gov, and you can look up all this stat uh, by anytime you want. It's right there on their front page. Uh, but yeah, all, all indications are second quarter is going to be really bad. Okay, so the comforting news is we actually have some recent history. So if you look back, we went through a very similar kind of response in the 2008-2009 financial crisis where we went through this rapid increase in money creation. And after that, there was a lot of concern about inflation, and we really didn't see it. If you go back and look at the data in 2010 to until just most recently, we've had low and steady inflation. The target has been right around 2%, and the Fed has met their target uh, just about uh, every, every month that that uh, has been reported. So I have a great deal of confidence in the Fed that they did it before, not too long ago, just 10, 12 years ago, where there was a rapid increase in money creation and inflation was kept in check. 
and I think there's every reason to believe that we're going to be just as smart about managing the economy after the epidemic or pandemic is over and uh, the Fed is going to do its job just as well as it did before and I don't expect rampant inflation uh, after this episode is over as well. So there should be lots of optimism there for inflation not to get out of control. Business Matters Talk Show with Charles Musgrove is sponsored by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting and tax preparation needs, visit beanteam.com or call 893-7710. You can listen to more episodes of Business Matters on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or visit beanteam.com. You know, I don't remember off the top of my head, and, and just to make sure uh, we're accurate with the dates, um, I think you had uh, mentioned 2001. Uh, I was actually referring to the 2008 financial crisis, um, the, the, the so-called so-called Great Recession. So I just want to make sure we were clear there. Um, I think we were in similar territory. I, I don't remember the exact numbers off the top of my head. I'd have to go look them up. Uh, but certainly we were uh, much higher than zero before that crisis hit. Uh, I think we were in the neighborhood of about three or three and a half percent um, interest rates um, for some long-term interest rates before the housing crisis started to unfold in 2008. And very quickly, the Fed did uh, what it's doing right now is it lowered interest rates to nearly zero and it had a great increase in the amount of funds that were provided into the market. Again, we call that uh, liquidity. Uh, we call that buying bonds. Uh, if you look at the Federal Reserve Bank assets sheet, uh, that increased by um, over $2 trillion uh, back in 2008. And we saw a similar kind of spike. I mean, if you just look at the graphs, if you forget the exact measurements, if you just look at the graph, uh, you saw these big spikes, uh, increases in uh, the Fed balance sheet in terms of this money creation process and liquidity infused into the economy. And uh, back then, I remember very vividly getting similar questions about, is this going to cause inflation? And on the surface, it seems like, yes, it will. Uh, but the Fed did a masterful job of reining some of that back in at the appropriate time. And if you look at the inflation data, we didn't really see inflation take off after that. We stayed low and steady uh, shortly after that recession was over and as the economy got going again and we officially got back into positive territory in 2010, uh, from 2010 until recently, 
we've had low and steady inflation. So that gives me a lot of reason for optimism that the same kind of thing is going to happen. We're going to see a huge spike, and we're, we're seeing it right now. Uh, a similar process where the Fed is, is creating money and lowering interest rates to zero and trying to stimulate the economy. But they've got recent history that they did a good job, and I have every reason to believe they're going to repeat that history, and inflation is going to stay low and steady. Well, normally that would have a much bigger impact on the economy. Uh, but if you're like me, you're not filling up on a regular basis right now because you're not going anywhere. Uh, you know, I'm barely driving around town. I don't think I've even thought about putting gas in my car for over two weeks right now. So in a way, it's it, it, from a consumer's point of view, it's bad timing because normally I love low gas prices because I'm driving around and doing all my activities and I need to go to the pump on a regular basis. But right now, I can't take advantage of those low prices. So lower gas prices always comes with a good news, bad news. I mean, it's good for some people, but it's not good for everybody. I mean, it's clearly not good for the big oil companies when they have their revenues go down so dramatically. But it is good for consumers and, and those who actually use the gas. And I know I love seeing prices well below $2, uh, even though I'm not filling up on a regular basis. It does bring a smile to my face when I drive by the gas station and see something lower than 2 um, So uh, gas prices always have uh, kind of this, this twofold effect. It's good for some segments of the economy, and it's not good for other segments of the economy. Um, so I don't think that's going to have much of an impact right now, simply because most people aren't allowed to drive around, and uh, it's not really going to give the positive effect that it normally does. And we just have to wait to see how Saudi Arabia and Russia battle this thing out, because they're the two major players right now that are pushing prices down so low. Yeah, if you're if you're a trucking company right now, you're loving these prices because your costs just went down dramatically. Normally, airlines would be very happy right now because uh, jet fuel is a huge part of their costs, of course. But uh, they're not flying very many planes right now, so they can't take advantage of this low price environment that we're in, just like you and I can't fully take advantage of it. So from a rebound uh, recovery point of view, hopefully gas prices will stay low as we come out of the pandemic and the economy starts to open up again. Um, I wouldn't call it worst case scenario, but clearly not as good case scenario would be if gas prices started to rise at the same time we started to emerge from this pandemic. Uh, you know, as a consumer, we want to keep our costs as low as possible, and I'd rather go spend money on other things versus um, higher gas prices. So we'll have to see how that plays out. Again, Saudi Arabia and, and Russia are the two big uh, countries duking this out right now. So we'll just have to see how long they continue their fight. Yeah. 
Well, I think uh, we're. I think our leaders are going to be smart in terms of opening it up in phases, and then I think a lot of private citizens are just going to open it up in phases as well. So let's just imagine. A, a, a world where our leaders say, okay, okay, you know what, anybody who wants to open, go ahead and open back up. And so let's suppose that airlines, you know, started running normal and movie theaters uh, opened up. People are going to be smart enough to realize that that's probably not in their personal best interest. I know if tomorrow a movie theater opened up, I would not be running to the movie theater. Uh, I would consider that to be a little bit too risky. And I think our government leaders recognize those kinds of things as well. And they're going to be smart enough to open this up in phases. And they'll make this very delicate trade-off about reopening the economy but not increasing health concerns to individuals. So I'm sure they'll come up with a reasonable list. I'm sure not everybody will agree, but it will be a reasonable list about these kinds of businesses can open and these kinds can't and uh, for a period of time. And then... Yeah, and then we'll collect some data, and then we'll we'll go into another phase. So I, I think it has to open in phases just to balance this delicate trade-off between health and economics. Right, and there's a balance also. You mentioned the, the movie, the movie theater. That I can envision where not just the movie theater, but but most businesses that that have consumed the in the location that they're going to come up with. Yeah, exactly. And we're seeing that already. I mean, I was just in Walmart the other day, had to go get some basic necessities of life. And uh, nobody told Walmart to do this, but I thought it was quite an ingenious plan where Walmart put markings on the floor to remind us how far six feet is. So there's these blue markers all over the place. And then it had mapped out its store so that consumers kind of had to zigzag through their aisles so there was a, a one way in and a one way out so you just couldn't walk around anyway they're they're trying to to be pers- purposeful and it's in their own self-interest to do this because the last thing any business wants is for somebody to get sick after they visit because that will almost immediately shut them down consumers will just run away from there so we can let these individual businesses be entrepreneurial be innovative with some of their own. It doesn't all have to come from the governor or from the president or from some government agency. We can allow these businesses to say, you know what, this is what's best for me given my physical layout, given the kind of business that I am. So let's just imagine a restaurant. A restaurant is not going to immediately open just because the governor says and put their consumers at risk. I can imagine that even if they were given the completely green light, yes, open up your uh, your restaurant and seat people wherever you want, the, the individual restaurant will say, you know what, maybe the best thing for me and my customers is to go every other seat. And, and they'll come up with their own innovative solutions. And I think we need to allow them some leeway, give them some general direction, but then allow them to come up with their own solutions that they know is going to be best for them. Also, and if they see that, that uh, 
Absolutely. Yeah, and and I I think our leaders are going to be smart enough. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think our leaders are going to be smart enough to allow some differences, not just within the state, because you just think think of a big state like Florida. What we do in the Panhandle and what we do in Central Florida and what we do in South Florida can look a lot different given the, the physical characteristics, given the, the kind of people, the kind of businesses. There's no way that the governor can say everybody in the state of Florida has to do it this way. It just doesn't make any sense. And I know our governor is smart enough to realize that, and I think a lot of other leaders around the country are smart enough to do that as well. But let's issue some general guidelines, but then let's leave it up to smart local people to figure out what's best for them. I agree. I think we're going to see that. I look forward to uh, people get back to the lake to get the economy back up and running. I'm just, uh, I think like a lot of people that are fearful that the, that the longer this thing starts to come out and lock down like it is, the more difficult it's going to be to come out and dig deep for all of it. That it's going to be hard for, for people that have come back. So, yeah. Yes, yes, I agree. I'm, I know I'm anxious for that. I know a lot of the people are just getting fatigued with hearing about this. Uh, I know I've, I go days where I don't even look at the news because I'm just tired of hearing about a pandemic and I'm tired of hearing about this thing called COVID-19. So I just turn it off and I just go look at something else to entertain myself. And I know a lot of other people are feeling the same way. They're just fatigued with the whole thing. They want it to be over with. And hopefully we can all just hunker down and be patient for a little bit longer. If we all rush out into the world and try to resume normal lives, uh, that could be dangerous. So we need to, to be as patient as possible. And I know it's getting more and more difficult, but that's really the, the best thing that we can do right now. That brought a glimmer of normalcy. Yeah, I'm a big football fan, so that that was uh, brought a smile to my face. Well, I appreciate being here. Thanks very much for asking me. Business Matters Talk Show with Charles Musgrove is sponsored by The Bean Team. For all your business accounting and tax preparation needs, visit beanteam.com or call 893-7710. You can listen to more episodes of Business Matters on Apple Podcasts, YouTube, or visit beanteam.com.